Okay, today is September the 8th, 2011. Are we going to have the Glory Be Girls, Karen? And it will be uh, Wednesday the 21st? Wednesday the 21st at what, 10 o'clock? 10.30. Wednesday here at the church on the 21st, Glory Be Girls. Also, I'm going to have a Logos seminar here October the 13th. Uh, not everybody has Logos um, software. It's the state-of-the-art Bible software. And they have um, a discount on it until the end of this month. And you... If you if you are like if you have Logos three, you can upgrade to Logos four. And I'm not even going to touch Logos three because Logos four is so much better. And if you want to find out about this Bible software, you can go to Logos.com, and it will have all the different packages of what you can get in order to have the 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 best Bible software there is out there. It's the kind that I use. And you can start out just with a small package and still get the Libronic system. It's the Libronic system that is uh, amazing. There is a learning curve, and that's one reason I'm going to give a seminar on it October the 13th. But it's, it's amazing what they have done. Usually in the Christian realm, things kind of lag behind the secular world with regards to technology, but not so in this software. This is light years ahead of just about anything else they have. So if you are interested in attending that or getting that software, you can go to logos.com, and if you get confused or if you need any advice as to what package to get, uh, you need to call me because you don't have to spend a whole lot of money. All that does is give you more books in your library but you still have the Logos system to start with, and you want to get the Logos 4 if you're interested in getting that Bible software. Anyway, that's going to be October the 13th. And September the 17th, we're going to have that long-term food storage and preparation. It's going to be here at the church. It's going to be Friday, Saturday, Saturday afternoon here at 2 o'clock. And they're going to show you how to um, keep food long-term. And I think they're even going to have a little cooking here or something. You don't have to cook. I mean, somebody else is going to do the cooking. I assume that uh, taste testing is my favorite thing to do. So anyhow, that is the 17th of this month. That's all I can think of uh, right now. We'll give you a lot more details as we get closer to it. Um, before we begin, I'm, I'm, I'm going to—I uh, haven't told anybody this, and I'll tell them now. Um, we went uh, Tuesday night. We went over what we're going to go over again tonight. We've been looking at the dual meaning of words and phrases, and Tuesday night was not a banner night for me. Uh, there was a lot of confusion, and the confusion was all 100% my fault. So I'm telling uh, George and Rachel to not make any DVDs or CDs of that. And Ken, you can just take it off the computer back there. Okay. You already did it? Okay. Right. We'll just we'll just make this this one the same number um, because I don't want to confuse anyone and and, and when when y'all are confused I think it was mainly because I got confused and we don't need that on the internet so um, this tonight will be the same lesson number that would have been Tuesday night okay let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion we'll have a few moments of silent prayer the option of rebound if necessary let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness in providing for all our needs, especially the spiritual needs that we have, that You enabled us to learn the whole realm of doctrine because of Your grace system of perception, that we can prepare now for what's coming, and we never know what the next day will hold. We think of these many people in Texas, Bastrop area and others, that have lost their homes, their belongings, all they have essentially is their life and whatever clothes they have on their back. We don't know when such things are going to happen, and this is the time when we can prepare. It also is a time for us to be able to reach out to these people and help them to understand what life is really about, and it's not the things we possess. It's really about our relationship with you through your word and through the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you will help us to take advantage of these opportunities that you'll help us to focus and concentrate tonight. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start again with uh, this dual meaning of words. They have a positional and an experiential sense. And I've said this over and over again, and I'm saying it again tonight. I can't overemphasize the importance of being able to determine phrases and words what their meaning is in context. Sometimes, but not most of the time, it's not a, a Greek word, uh, the morphology of it, the grammar, the syntax. More than anything, it's just the context that's going to determine whether a word is positional, which is relating to that one point in time when we believe in Jesus Christ, which is uh, when we're born again, we acquire a human spirit, we have God's in, uh, righteousness imputed to us, eternal life imputed to us. In fact, there's over 40 things that take place at that moment. And where so many people get confused and get out of sorts is when they take the words and phrases that have an experiential sense to them. The context is not referring to what happens at the moment of salvation. It's referring to everything that happens after that. And unfortunately, there's so many believers that haven't acquired any good Bible teaching that don't know what to do after salvation. And their whole life is focused back on that point in time. And for the, they, they think that living the Christian life, for the most part, is being moral. And they try to live by the Ten Commandments. They try to be as moral as possible. Nothing wrong with that until you think this is the Christian way of life in the church age, which it is not. An unbeliever can be moral. In fact, there are people who are unbelievers who are probably more moral than most believers because they think their eternal destiny depends upon their morality. Now, this is not a solicitation for us to go out and raise hell and be immoral. But we have to rightly divide the word of truth. And when we're talking about spiritual things, we have to recognize the distinction between the positional and experiential, and that's what we have done. Overcome the world, inheritance, saved, eternal life, justified. Here you have it on the screen, all these different verses, the ones that are positional, the ones that are experiential. We have sanctification, and then we have righteousness also. And we have covered all the way down to being justified, and then when we went into righteousness, we kind of hit a stump. At least I did. And so we're going to start there tonight. I'm going to try to clarify a few things and help us understand that this righteousness is one of the words that has a dual meaning. Sometimes it's talking about the imputed righteousness that we receive at the moment of salvation, which we find in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 is a couple of the illustrations. On the experiential side of righteousness, we looked at Romans chapter 6, verse 13 through 23, and that whole area, for the most part, is dealing with experiential righteousness. There is one little blurb in there about righteousness. But you'll notice I don't have a Titus 3, 5 on the screen. That's where we uh, started taking on water. Uh, <laughs> And I, I've done further study and reflection. And 
Titus 3.5 is not an experiential type of righteousness. It is a positional type of righteousness. And I have some other examples of the experiential type. What I'm talking about is, I think everyone here is familiar with the imputed righteousness. We, everybody has gone over that and they're just very clear on that fact. But what might be a little murky is the idea that we also can produce righteousness ourselves, And it gets, some of the confusion occurs because even unbelievers can produce righteousness. Of course, it's not the same kind of righteousness that a believer produces when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's divine good. And that's rewardable. And uh, an un, even a believer, though, can produce righteousness like an unbeliever. When you do good deeds, when you're doing something that is commendable, but it's not done in the filling of the Holy Spirit, you might have the wrong motivation, or if you're still controlled by your old sin nature, and you are producing good, and of course that's one of the areas that the old sin nature produces, and sometimes it is area of strength, which is human good, area of weakness, is sin. And so this gets a little, uh, that's where we, at least for my part, I didn't make these distinctions clear enough. The righteousness that we do as believers, which is divine good, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, is the experiential righteousness that I'm referring to. It's not the righteousness that we have imputed, something that God does. But we can produce righteousness that is accepted by God the Father when we're filled with the Holy Spirit because it is God the Holy Spirit that produces those good works and that righteousness through us. Okay? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10 to get an example. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse ten. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. This is what the analogy was up in the previous verse. It's not an analogy, but the subject matter. Talking about logistical grace here. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God supplies our needs in a logistical sense, but He also provides our needs in a spiritual sense. Just as He supplies and multiplies your seed for sowing and increases the harvest of your righteousness, He does that through the empowerment that we have when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But you notice that. Your righteousness. This righteousness is not the imputed righteousness that comes from God. And it is God that supplies everything we need in order to have our supply multiplied and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11 says, You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. This is an experiential righteousness. In other words, when you're out under the filling of the Holy Spirit and you're motivated to please God, or even if you're motivated to receive de de decorations, rewards, privileges, and opportunities, that is a bona fide motivation. When you're doing these divine good, this divine good, whatever it is, actually what you're doing is increasing your righteousness. Understand that. Your righteousness. And we can't brag and strut about because it's God that's doing it through us. And our God is so gracious. All, see, He uses us to accomplish 
his good pleasure, which in this sense is good deeds and righteousness. And when we add our positive volition to this, we are only doing what He is enabling us to do, and yet He is so gracious, He still rewards us for it. That's the kind of God we have. Now, I have some more verses here just to kind of clarify this. I don't know if you can see them. They're really light right down in this area here. We'll turn to a few more. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, 11. Let's start with verse 10. That'll, that'll help clarify the context of verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. This is a verse that's misquoted many times. You hear people say that money is the root of all evil. And that's not what, this, that's not what the Bible says. It says in verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This type of righteousness that we pursue is not the positional type. It is the experiential type. We are to pursue it. Let's go to 2 Timothy. You all have heard this verse I don't know how many times. Maybe you've never thought of it from this, from this time. 2 Timothy 3.16 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is, my translation says, inspired by God. I never quote it that way. All Scripture is what? God-breathed. Theos neustos. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for Training in righteousness. We don't have to be trained in righteousness at the moment of salvation when we have God's righteousness imputed to us, do we? So this is not the positional type. This is experiential. What is it we're talking about when it says that we must be trained or instructed in righteousness? Because there is a self-righteousness that sometimes appears to be the type of righteousness that is rewardable, the type that we are to pursue. We have to train what, be trained as to what does it mean to be righteous. We don't have to do anything good to be righteous before God, do we? See, this is where you have to keep these distinctions clear. We are accepted before God because we have His righteousness. And where people get mixed up is when they think, oh, in order to be accepted by God, I have to be trained in righteousness. I have to pursue righteousness. And if I do a good job in being trained in righteousness and pursuing righteousness, then I'll be accepted before God. You see, the quagmire that is. No, we are accepted by God because the moment we had faith in Christ, He imputed to us His own righteousness. But there still is something that we need to pursue after that, and that is how to be righteous. What does righteousness mean? If you want to distill it down to its most simplest form, it means to be right. To do things right. To do a right thing in a right way. 
because you have been trained in the Word of God to apply His Word to every circumstance in life and you know how to do it right. Not only do you know what the right thing is to do, you know how to do it in a right way. That's the righteousness. Let's go to Titus chapter 2, verse 12. We're staying in the T's. You all notice that? We'll start with verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse We'll look at verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We could stop and talk about that for a while, couldn't we? But we'll press on verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What is one of the motivations that helps us to do that? Look at the next verse. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. One of our motivation, motivating forces that helps us to deny God, uh, godliness, ungodliness, excuse me, and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously in this present age, is that Jesus Christ could come at any time. And it should be a, what this says, is a blessed hope. It motivates us to continue to go for the goal, to reach for the prize. Isn't the last thing you want to do when Jesus Christ returns is be kind of in a low spot in your spiritual life? I don't know about you, but that's not what I want. I want to be at the peak. Knowing that He can come at any time is, is a motivating force. But as you see here, it's talking about to live sensibly and righteously. Living righteously is producing an experiential righteousness that God has wrought through us. And it is rewardable. Let's go to one more. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 33. Again, we'll start with verse 32 to keep it in context. Now, you should already know by now that Hebrews chapter 11 is the winner's chapter. These are the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11. I guess you could say about these people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Look up here on the board. They overcame the world in experiential sense. In an inheritance, they have a, an inheritance. Instead, of, they're going to inhabit, uh, inherit heaven instead of just inhabiting it. They were experientially saved or delivered from a useless, wasteless life. They had the experiential eternal life. And if you can just think of this eternal life in the experiential sense if you can understand it as the abundant life, it would be essentially the same thing. The Bible calls it the eternal life, but what it is describing is the abundant life that God wants us to live. These people have been justified experientially. Of course, all the other positional also, but uh, sanctified experientially. They were set apart for blessing in a special way. And they have this experiential righteousness as well. So let's look at... Chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I mean, he's, he's talked about Rahab. He's talked about uh, Moses and 
about Abraham and a, a whole host of people here that are heroes. And then he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness. Underline that. They performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and it just goes on and on. These are acts of righteousness, experiential righteousness. So I gave you a few more verses than just two with regards to experiential righteousness. Romans six thirteen through twenty three, 2 Corinthians nine ten. 1 Timothy 6.11, 2 Timothy 3.16, Titus 2.12, and Hebrews 11.33 are all examples of experiential righteousness. Now let me ask you a question to see if you've got this. Every person that believes in Jesus Christ has imputed righteousness. Is it, far, is it possible for a believer to have God's imputed righteousness and yet fail to have any experiential righteousness. Unfortunately, that's the case for most believers these days. And where people get mixed up is when they think, well, I've got... They, they, even if they know that they have God's imputed righteousness, which most believers don't know that they have it, but even if they think, well, I'm a believer, that means that I'm safe... Uh, they 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 think that either they have to uh, perform some type of righteous deeds in order to be accepted by God, or else they go the other direction and say, uh, "What do they say? Ali Ali ox, oxen free? I, I'm I've got it. I'm I'm home free. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to have any good works. I don't have to be righteous. I'm going to heaven." And so we see here another example of the importance of rightly dividing the word, seeing these two types of or dual meanings of these words. Now we skipped sanctification last time, so let's go to it. We've spent so much time in sanctification, so we won't hit this real hard, but we do need to look at the scriptures. Let's go to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26 and verse... We just break into this. The thing, sometimes in the, in the, in the Bible, you, you don't want to start in the middle of a, of a sentence somewhere, but the, the sentence is a half a page and has so much other doctrine in it. We'll just go straight to verse 18. Like Acts 26, 18. To open the eyes their eyes so that they turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So you can tell that that is what? Positional. This is Acts chapter 26 and verse 18. Sanctified by faith in me. Every believer is sanctified by faith in Christ in a positional sense. Set apart for blessings. But not every saint that is sanctified by faith in Christ will have an inheritance. You'll only get an inheritance if you pursue righteousness and are trained in righteousness and produce that experiential righteousness. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12. Let's go there. 
This is just a very simple one. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He suffered that we may be sanctified. This is positionally sanctified. There are others, but I'm just trying to keep it. By the way, if we go, if you study this, if you go to this chart and you start looking at it, you have two verses on just about every one of these words or phrases, whether it's positional or experiential. Like we're looking at sanctification right now. If you go to Acts 26:18 or Hebrews 13:12, and you look in your concordance, then you can find other verses that are going to be similar to that. That's one way that you can get more verses, but I think two is enough to substantiate the point for our purpose. Now let's look at the experiential sense and go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21. I know some people that have a little system down when they're looking at these type of things. They'll outside the verse they'll put a T for positional or maybe an EX for experiential. And they just go through there and do that. Some of them use colored things. You can get kind of fancy if you want to, but the main thing is that you understand the distinctions, the differences. Now we're going to look at the experiential sense of being sanctified. Verse twenty one of Second Timothy chapter two. Therefore if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. A vessel of honor, sanctified, set apart for blessing. By the way, how does a man cleanse himself? You mean there's not... There's not a, a holy shower in the church? <laughs> I don't know I, I, what they use holy water for, but maybe, I don't know. Anyhow, we cleanse ourselves by acknowledging our sins to God. That's when we are then have the potential to be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. Divine good. We'll go to one more in the sanctified area here, and that is John 17, 17. should have this one underlined. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. When we are positionally sanctified at the moment of salvation, God does all the work. He's the one that accomplishes it. Now we're being commanded to... Well, this is actually Christ's prayer. When people pray the Lord's Prayer, they ought to be seeing what the Lord prayed for us here. He's, he's imploring God to sanctify us, believers, in the truth. Thy word is truth. This is how we're sanctified. is through the truth, through the knowledge. And that's an experiential type of sanctification. Okay, let's get down. We have two more. I'd like to finish these tonight. Y'all are probably getting tired of seeing this visual, and that's good because you'll remember it. What about a son? There is a positional and experiential sense even to being a son 
course, this is a generic term. It would be the same for daughters also. Let's go to Galatians 3.26 and see it in the positional sense. All right. Son, you are on faith at being a son in a positional sense. That hardly covers it. At my mother-in-law's funeral, at her request, Pastor did her grandson. I read the entire chapter 8 of the seven verses. And we get a bit of it here. Verse 15. 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, and that is a first-class conditional cause, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But I want you to see that we are sons of God, children of God, and heirs of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, and we are, heirs of God. Now see, the ch up to that point, the children is a done deal. That's the positional sense of it. But then it says, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. That part is conditional. You got that? That's how you have to be careful and see the distinctions here. We are children of God in a positional sense because of faith in Christ. Airship is another is another sense. Michael? Right. It's the son's part. It's being children that is positional and the air part is experiential and our next word here is heirs and we're going to see this again. Now let's look at the experiential sense of being a son. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. We're going to read verse 44 and 45. If you have a red-lettered edition, you'll notice that this is red, which means Christ said it. So we can believe it because it's in red. <laughs> I say that, of course, tongue-in-cheek. There are some people who say if it's not in red, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't count. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You notice it says may be or may become sons. That's a potential. If it is positional, it's not a potential. It's a reality. It's a done deal. It's accomplished on the cross. For those, or at least for those who believe in Christ and His work on the cross, it's a done deal. Pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father. Another way of understanding this in Joseph Dillow's book, Reign of the Servant King, he said there's, there are sons 
Everyone that believes in Jesus Christ as a son is a child of God. But then there are sons indeed. And that's what we want to be, sons indeed. That you may become sons. If you put the word, just for clarification, to help you understand this more, if it says, and I say to you, uh, well, in verse 45, in order that you may become sons indeed of your father. That's the meaning. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8. This time we're going to look at verse 14. Verse 14 of Romans 8. For all, and in context, the all is referring to mature believers. For all who are, all mature believers who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And you have there, huios, adult son. Do, are all believers led by the Spirit of God? No. Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons indeed of God. You see the, you see the difference there. You become a child of God when you're regenerated, when you're born again. At the moment of salvation, you are a son, a child. I don't, I don't I never hear it said daughters of God but if you're female I guess you could say I'm a daughter of God you're a child of God I'm a child we're all all by everyone here I think I can safely say we're all God's children I can't go outside these doors and say that because to be a child of God positionally you have to have believed in Jesus Christ and be born again how many times you hear people say, and they're talking to maybe a huge crowd, well, we're all God's children. No, we're not. Only those who believe in Jesus Christ are God's children. And we are not all the, all the people that have believed in Jesus Christ are not sons indeed. They're not experientially a son that is on track to have rewards and decorations and so forth. Only those who are being led by the Spirit of God according to this verse in Romans 8, 14. All right, let's go on. This is the last one. This is the ninth example. And we're talking about heirs. This is similar to what we had up here, an inheritance. But now we're talking about an inheritance and being an heir. There's a little, there's a little difference there. So let's go to... Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. This includes sonship as well as what we were just talking about. Galatians 4, 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Turn to Ephesians 3. Galatians chapter 3. And verse 6.
To be specific, this is verse 6, Galatians, I mean, excuse me, Ephesians 3, 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's a positional sense of being an heir because it came through the gospel. You are an heir of heaven in a positional sense because of the gospel. But there's also an heirship that depends upon your experience here on earth, and that's where we're going next, is the experiential type of heir. The last one, Ephesians 3, 6. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and we'll look at this heirship in a different way, in an experiential sense. Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 7. I was looking in, for some reason, in the wrong chapter. I was looking at Hebrews 12, 12, 7. It's good. That's why I, I just kind of tuned out there for a minute. I thought, I was reading. I went to the wrong place. I said, man, this is a good verse. It has to do with sons. Anyway, okay, we'll get back over here to 11, 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. But what does it say? By faith... Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir. This faith that it's talking about Noah here, is that the faith that Noah had when he accepted the gospel? When he accepted the the promise? No. This is a faith that God said He's going to destroy the world and Noah had faith in that. He believed that. And that resulted in action. So he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. What kind of salvation is that? Did he prepare an ark so they'd go to heaven? Well, they, they didn't go to heaven then. They went into Abraham's bosom. Paradise. No. By which he condemned the world, this was the flood, and became an heir. You see the conditional part of that? An heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. According to faith in what? Faith that God was going to condemn the world by flood. You see, this is what makes all this so hard. I was talking to a friend of mine just the other day. We have words and phrases and we have certain things that when something is said, we automatically default to what we know and what we have always understood. It's just automatic. And that's why a lot of people, especially when it comes to... In here, we have a lot of words. We have salvation, faith. And where most people, even most believers, when they hear salvation and faith, they default automatically. This is talking about eternal salvation. That's where they go. And 
That's not what this is talking about. It doesn't even make sense when you start putting a positional sense on something that's experiential. And it's kind of hard. We have to look at these words and look at these verses in a different way because we're very comfortable in hearing salvation and faith and righteousness. and we, It's very easy for us to think of as positional because that's what we've been trained so vividly in, haven't we? It, that's not a bad thing, but we also have to recognize that the Bible uses these words and these phrases in a different sense and it doesn't have anything to do with eternal salvation being delivered from the lake of fire. And I can tell by your faces, it's somewhat arduous. I don't know if y'all like this study, but there it is. We, We do it anyway, because it's necessary to do it. It's not easy to change your thinking, is it? Let's look at it one more time. By faith, Noah. Not faith in the gospel, not faith that has anything to do with eternal sense, being warned by God about things not yet seen. See, when, he, when God came to Noah and said, there's going to be a flood, I'm going to wipe it out. Nobody had seen about it. What happened for 120 years while he was building the ark? Scoff. Ah, there's, come, come with me. Let's go look at the nut job. He's got this great big thing. It's made out of wood. Oh, it's a, it's a blast. It's better than going to the movies. Come on. Let's go see it. We can mock him. It's fun. That went on for 120 years. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about these things, not yet seen in reverence, respect for God, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household to be delivered out of this flood, by which he condemned the world with this flood and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It was a righteous act that he obeyed God. And it was a righteous act based on faith that God meant what he said he was going to do. He said he's going to, he's going to flood the earth. Noah believed it. And he, he produced an experiential righteousness that was based on faith. And it didn't have anything to do with him being saved. He already was saved. I'd say it again if I thought that it would help. <laughs> I think you're, you're getting it, hopefully. But it's not, it's, it's not easy to come to this conclusion because look at this. We have faith mentioned a couple of times in here. We have righteousness. We have uh, saved, uh, salvation. All these things, in our minds, we want to default to the positional but that's not what this is about. Let's go to James chapter 2. This is our last verse. James chapter 2. What a chapter. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren... Who's he talking to? Believers? Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Do you see it? Do you see that this is an experiential type of heir? Because there's a condition there. Those who love him I'll read it one more time. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and essentially to be heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Every believer is going to be in the kingdom. Every church-age believer is going to be in the kingdom, but not every believer in the kingdom is going to be an heir. Only those, according to this verse, who love Him. Most believers don't love Him because they don't know Him. Because they don't know squat about the Word of God. So I am, I am saying that this is another example of being an heir in an experiential sense. 
All believers are heirs of heaven in a positional sense. But only those who love God, only those who are led by the Spirit of God are going to be inheritors, heirs in the kingdom and having inheritance rights. What's the difference if you walk through the front door and in one sense you're a renter and the other sense you've inherited the house? Does that make a difference? That's what the Bible is saying in the same sense. When you go into heaven, do you want to be renting or do you want to have an inheritance? I don't know, this just popped in my mind. I probably shouldn't say it, but I will anyway. Our mansions are probably... I can't even believe how perfect they're going to be. And we're not going to have an old sin nature. But I know some of you ladies might want to just move this a little over here and make a little adjustment over there. Uh, maybe this could be a little different color. Uh, maybe this could shine a little brighter. or Whatever will be happening. I don't know if that's going to happen. But to, for the sake of the illustration... If you're an inheritor, you can do it because you're not a renter. If you're an inheritor, you can go anywhere you want to in heaven. When you talk about country clubs, when I was in Houston, I went to the River Oaks Country Club one time just to look at it, and they wouldn't even let us in the gate. We couldn't even get to the building, much less go in the building. Maybe that's going to be like that in heaven for those who are only positional in all of these areas and they have no experiential. Because it's not going to be the same for all of us. Okay? Yes, uh, we're past time by one minute, but that's okay. <clears throat> Mike, I'd like to say the, the prodigal son and his father is a good example of this was a son positionally forever. And then the experiential thing, when he went out on his own and he left the, the graces of the Father's place, experientially, he goofed up terribly bad. But when he humbled himself, which is a picture of First John 1, 9, and rebounded, he come back home, his father graciously received him. That's grace, grace, grace all the way through. Even though this man messed up, he had taken his inheritance and wasted it, but his father still received him as his son. Yeah. We're, we're all, we're all no, uh, God's children. There's nothing that we can do to change that. Thank goodness. Thank the Lord of that. <laughs> uh, we can take solace in that. But God wants much more for us. He wants us to be a son indeed. He wants us to have the abundant life. He wants us to have, be able to give us more than we can even ask or think because it glorifies Him to do so. And He's got the means to do it. And it all depends on the decisions that we make now. And understanding His Word is an integral part of that and realizing that these words and phrases have dual meanings goes so far into understanding the Word, but being able to rightly divide it so that we are able to glorify Him more by what all He can give us and do for us. Let's close. Father, thank You for this time You've given us to focus on these phrases, these, these words. We pray that You will help us to look at the context that we'll be able to use the systematic theology and the doctrine in our soul to rightly divide these verses so that we won't get off track, we won't be confused, and indeed we'll be able to show others that we still have a purpose left on this planet after we believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to grow up so that we can... Uh, be qualified to be inheritors of heaven. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.